Welcome to the Nomadic Mindset Season 1. My name is Kevin Cottom, a global nomad and the author of the leadership book, The Nomadic Mindset Never Settle for Too Long. Over the season, we will go on a journey to discover what is the nomadic mindset and how you can tap into that. For this, I will be interviewing a diverse group of cross-cultural thought leaders from all walks of life. So let's get on with it. Let's go nomading together. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Nomadic Mindset Season 1. Today's focus is the Nomadic Mindset Meets Industrial Design. Our guest this week is Philippe Guichard, who is an award-winning international industrial designer. I'm particularly excited about this interview simply because I like industrial design and I like products. He has launched numerous successful products, a feat which is also helped by his background in mechanical engineering. Philippe's vision is to change the way we produce and consume things by designing purposeful products and companies, ultimately for the bottom line, profit, environmental sustainability, and social responsibility. These are very important, I believe. Philippe is passionate about making a positive difference to the world through his work and as a designer. He shares his ideas as being a speaker. So let us invite and engage with Philippe and find out what he has to say about the nomadic mindset and industrial design. I would like to welcome Philippe Guichard today. So Philippe, how are you doing? I'm very well, Kevin. Thanks a lot for inviting me on your show today. I, I know that uh, our, our listeners will be very excited to hear what you have to say about industrial design and especially what you've talked about, social responsibility and also the other aspects of being very important to environmental design. So let us get going. I would like to ask you, first of all, what is the true meaning of industrial design, in your words. Okay. Well, I can probably share what I sense from my experience, what is industrial design. I think I would de describe that as applied creativity for a commercial purpose, which is a bit different than art, I would say, where you could have a commercial purpose, but sometimes you don't. But industrial design is really focused on applying your creative skills so that you benefit other beings and the business and the overall ecosystem when possible. So that would be my definition of industrial design today. Very interesting. The applied, uh, you talked about applied creativity. What do you mean by applied? I think you can be creative for the sake of creativity itself, which is a great exercise. Applied creativity means there is an outcome that is expected. So how can I describe that? Let's say I can create a chair and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that for the sake of creating a chair. So I'm going to do something that could be completely extravagant or completely funny or, you know, pushing the boundaries of manufacturing and all that stuff. But they may not be the commercial purpose or the outcome that maybe a company would expect. So a company would expect to create a chair maybe for bars with high traffic that would be comfortable, but not too comfortable because you don't want people to stay for too long. And that chair is in this environment. And then you need to create a chair for that specific environment. So that, that's where I would qualify that as applied creativity. Hmm. Right. Now we talk about environment and you talk about environmental design an awful lot and uh, sustainability. And what are you seeing today uh, in, in the throws of products and their design? Is there, in your opinion, a lot of environmental sustainability in the thinking, the mindset when it's going behind a lot of industrial design? I think there's a progression there. I can see two very big trends. One is this kind of, um, high pace, high turnover products that appear, you know, on Amazon or different retail places. And then they just stay just for a few weeks or month and then they die. And then it's going to be replaced by the other one. So there's the, there's this still quick pace, high turnover design and something that I'm not really a, a big fan of. So I tend not to be involved in that type of um, activity. 
And there is a more, what I would say, more purposeful, more thoughtful design, which is providing value for different stakeholders and having more long-term thinking and more ecosystem thinking. So those products will last probably longer on the shelf. They will require a bit more thoughts when it comes to the development and the design itself, but the outcome will be more beneficial for everyone involved. Mm, two trends, interesting. So yeah. opposite, in some ways, opposite ends of the spectrum, really. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. And what yeah. is your preference? I have a very strong preference for thoughtful design that has a positive social impact and a, and a positive environmental impact. So I call that design for the triple bottom line. Mm. So you need to have still financial sustainability because we live in, in this world and you need to respect those kind of uh, rules to make things happen. At the same time, it doesn't need to, you can exclude environmental sustainability and social impact. So I think the, the, the main difference between all those aspects is the mindset where you start from. So what I see often when I have conversation with founders or CEOs is that, for example, they see environmental constraints as something compulsory that you need to do on top of everything. And if you have that approach, then it often results in an extra cost. So you do things on top and you pile up solutions and everything. But if you include that, from the very beginning of the thought process and a design process, then your approach from the product, from the ecosystem and from the business model can be completely different. And that opens a whole world of possibilities. And usually you get better profit margin in my experience and long lasting product. So it's, um, it's a real benefit for everyone. Can you just give us an example of what you mean by the latter part, the ecosystem and including the sustainable aspect of it from the very beginning? Yeah, so the ecosystem is trying to figure out what's and who is involved in the product lifecycle. So very often people look at their business just from their tiny business perspective. They don't look at what's prior to that, which is raw material and, and energy and everything. And they don't look at what's after and after, which is how you dispose of that. So, for example, back in the days, I heard statements saying that, like, let's say nuclear energy is zero emission and it's a clean energy. And you can debate that and you can say, yeah, it is. But if you just look at maybe just the, the production of energy when everything is already in place, then it's kind of cleaner than maybe something else. But if you look at the whole ecosystem, which is the extraction of the uranium, then the transportation of that, the cost of uh, a nuclear central power, the dismantle cost of that same um, power plant, and, and then the non-degradable aspect of the what, what do we do with the, the waste, the nuclear waste, and then you, you clearly see that it's not completely that zero carbon-free and all good and all green energy. There are aspects of that that we don't still know how to solve. So that's thinking in terms of ecosystem, trying to look at the whole life cycle and extending way further and way down the track just from only your business perspective. Mm, that's a great thinking. So looking at the whole picture is what you're talking about, looking very vastly from the, the very beginning of where could this start into discovering through the whole process into where it could come at the very end and then yeah. really realizing the whole process instead of just a, a small piece of the puzzle. Yeah, exactly. So another example would be the electric cars. And, and as they are today, there are a number of issues that we haven't solved. Uh, so for example, well, the electric cars have batteries. And if you just look at the car itself and you say, well, when the car is running, it's completely green, there's zero emission and everything. But if you look at the embedded energy in one car, electric car, versus the embedded energy in any other, other car, it's about four times the, the, the energy wow. in terms of difference. So you can see that there's always already something happening here. And it doesn't mean that this is bad or good. I'm not having a judgment on that. I'm trying to explain the thinking. 
And if you look at the batteries, if you look at the, the lake of pollution in Mongolia, where they extract the rare earth to do the batteries, then you can see we, we're going to face some kind of ecological issue there. So we need to dive into those issues and make sure that we can have a more sustainable system and not just look at the, the portion that we just want to show and, 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 you know, display to the world. Yeah, because most people are just seeing the end product and they're not really realizing everything that is important to go through this. And so consequently, wow, that takes a very different mindset in many ways. And you talked a little bit about mindset and yes. between these two. And it's very interesting what you're talking about, because when I was in Mongolia doing my research for my book, The Nomadic Mindset, Never Settle for Too Long, a wonderful statement, and I keep using it on an ongoing basis, and it keeps on coming up in these discussions on the, the podcast, and that is to think vastly, act narrowly. So that is one thing that I was told that the Mongolian nomads do, which means what you're talking about is a very similar, is look at the whole picture, they look at the vastness of what possibilities there are, but from the very beginning to the end, and then acting very narrowly and making solutions that are going to be beneficial to the whole environment and also to the commercial product. Mm -hmm. So there is something then in that mindset. And how do you feel then that we, you can start shifting? Because I'm sure that you have to start doing some education when you talk to your clients about this mindset. Exactly. I think the, the, that's the, the right keyword is education. And for me, the best way to educate is to do or to prove with case studies. So when, if I approach a CEO that needs a new product for man manufacturing and everything, and I say, yeah, I can design something and I can improve your profit margin maybe and you know all those traditional statements, there's no proof in that. And then they're going to challenge me, you know, how are you going to do that? So, and that's a fair conversation. But if I say, okay, I have a case study here, we did that product and we worked on making sure the product will deliver a lot of value for the customer, but also the retailer and everything. And by doing so, we've been increasing the profit margin by, I don't know, three. Mm. Then I will get their attention and say, oh, how do you do that? And I say, well, I will answer one, one of the ways is include a, a sustainability methodology, like let's say cradle to cradle methodology, for example. And by doing so, we're going to simplify the number of material. We're going to make sure that it's easily dismantable and quite a number of benefits. And those benefits also translate into financial benefits. And that's why we had a profit margin. And so if I approach a discussion this way, then I can get their attention, I guess. But if I talk about sustainability, then very often it's perceived as an extra cost, an extra investment, an extra cost. Yeah, it's kind of a debit instead of a credit in sense. Yes. In many yeah. ways on their bottom line. And again, it comes back to who is the audience and speaking their language in many ways. So knowing what do yeah. they want to hear? How do they want to hear it from? What angle do they want to hear it from? They want to know quickly from an early part, I suppose, is what you'll probably find is from a financial aspect. Give it to me quick. Yeah, exactly. Usually that's, that would be a trigger and that would explain the, the shift of uh, mindset that is possible to achieve. Mm. So very often the initial conversation will, will go along the lines of if you want to do environmental sustainability and have a positive social impact, that's all nice and great. But, you know, I have stakeholders and I need to take care of the bottom line. And this is how we do take care of the bottom line. That's the way we do it. If you just approach from that angle, then you realize that it, there's a kind of an issue in a conversation. So education is just saying, okay, well, how about you include that from the very beginning? You include that mindset with all your team. And then you realize that it's actually not a constraint, but it's an opportunity. And if you work on the opportunity side of things, then you can shift the whole thinking and then you can discover new ways to design products and services. How do you then, you talked about team. And so how do you then go in when you work with a client to work with the team? 
to get them in that right mindset and on board? Usually it's by, again, showing case studies that it is mm. possible. Mm. And then also sometimes it's having those personal conversations about values and beliefs. Mm. Most of the time, people just want to do well. They just want to contribute to positive world and all that. So it doesn't take a lot of convincing. What it takes is a, this conversation and make, it, make sure that conversation can happen so that we can lay different things on the table and then try to see, okay, how we can turn that constraint into an opportunity and then try to brainstorm and, and bring the creativity aspect in that and then move things slowly and, and design something that is a better outcome for everyone. That's a wonderful way of doing it. And, and what comes back to my mind then, in actual fact, the case study is like storytelling. Is about sharing with them a story that will be will entice them to move to the next stage. Would you say that? Or yeah, definitely. Yeah, I yeah, I think that's a, that's a very uh, clever way to summarize that. A case study is is not a scientific proof. It's sharing a story mm. that can inspire people. I think that's the main the main thing, and it's a real story. So it's not something that I made up or something. Most of the times, a project I've, I was involved in, and that's been successful in different aspects of the product, and sharing the story and saying, sharing the journey. I think people are really interested in the journey. So this morning, I had a meeting with a client and, and the general manager of the company, and I shared the story of one of the product. And people look very often at the outcome, but they don't look at the journey. Mm. And this morning, I shared a story about the journey, not in details because that's confidential, but there are common traits to stories. So in that context, what I was explaining is at the beginning, when you start shifting your mindset and you discover opportunities and options and you get this kind of curve of time and excitement in different axes and the curve goes all the way high. And you get really, really excited because you can see different opportunities. You can see stuff you haven't discovered before and your competitors haven't discovered before. So it looks and sounds really, really exciting. And then you go into what we call the deep, which is, oh, okay, so we start working on it. And then you realize that there are things that quite work, but they don't really work as well as you were expecting. And Or sometimes the costs are a bit too high and you need to review that. Or sometimes the business model doesn't quite work, or sometimes the market fit is not quite there where you were expecting, and you need to shift that too. So you go into the deep, and people sometimes give up at that stage. Mm. You think, oh, it's too hard, it doesn't work, and everything. But I've been doing that for long enough, and I know that you just need to go through the deep. Yeah. The the question, and it's like your nomadic mindset. Mm. You know, when you cross the desert there's a time where it's like it feels quite long and you you feel maybe a bit lost and everything and it's a bit of a grind but if you keep pushing if you keep going you're going to cross the desert mm -hmm. it's just a fact sometimes the, the question that you can't really answer is how deep is the deep and how long are we going to stay there and that's where the mindset also is very important because if your mindset is oh my gosh we're stuck and you know it's not going to happen and all that stuff then it's harder. But if you're the mindset, it's, it's just a dip. It's just a matter of keep working on it, having those conversations, coming back to the drawing board and trying over and over again. And eventually you will find the right, so to speak, answer in bracket or the proper answer for your market. I think this is, a, this is great the way you explain it. It's very, very clear and picturesque. In many ways, what I design actually in the, the book is a, a 5Ds journey map. And I think what you're explaining to me is exactly that journey map, which I believe is clear. And I just want to, if you can take a case study and go through these different and just share what you see as the different parts of the 5Ds. The 5Ds stand for direction, departure, discovery, destination, and distillation. So, you're setting off a direction for the product, right? And so that's mm -hmm. the thing that you do. And then you need a departure. So you need to collect a lot of information and a lot of different ideas and thoughts and processes. Mm -hmm. And then you go through the the valley and the discoveries where that dip can happen, right? Is to looking mm -hmm. at the, all the opportunities and, and finally reaching and coming out of that with the wonderful destination of, oh my God, we've got the product and it's here. 
And then going back and looking, well, how was that process? What did we learn? Mm-hmm. Where, where is the sustainability in that? And how can this now move forward? So what do you think? Do you think that's an interesting process, a way of looking at that journey? Because you're talking about journey as a story. And I, I love what you, you're saying. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the, the your 5D journey map is extremely similar to the kind of the design process that uh, I go through. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you need direction at the beginning. You need to set a very strong intention. I really believe in intention. Mm. I'm trying to have conversation around that very early in a process. And then the departure is like, you know, really taking action. So that's, that's definitely part of the journey, the design journey. And yet the discovery, as you know, could be positive or perceived as negative. Mm. I don't like the term failure. I, I'm not sure why I don't like that term as much, but there's no failure. There's just learning. Mm. You know, I have a son, he's going to turn seven, but, you know, a few years ago, he was just starting to walk and, and, and speak and all that. And I never said to my son, oh, you don't know how to walk, you're just barely crawling, you're a failure, or you, you've been failing. No, you're just learning. And then, you know, he's going to bump into your chair and next time on the table, and, you know, and that's how you learn. You learn from the experience. So for me, there's no failure, there's just experimenting and learning. Mm-hmm. So I like that with your discovery process or the the 5d journey map then the destination of course when you arrive there and the distillation and what you do learn from the experience and that's where maybe the storytelling really lies Mm. and that storytelling and the distillation that's a great one because now you're looking back right instead of looking forward you start looking forward from the direction forward and then back and you retell the story and then you've got your case study and then you can go on to manifesting with another client you've got a story to tell yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really believe in the power of stories. Mm. I can explain a case study from the methodology standpoint. But that's, as you know, that can be very boring for the audience because, you know, it's a seven steps methodology. And so step number one is this and everything. So that's not very compelling for the listener. But if I grab the listener with their particular angle, like let's say the CEO is like, well, I'm going to share this case study or this experience we have with our client where we've been able to multiply the profit margin by three. Mm-hmm. Would you like to listen to this? Mm-hmm. Usually I have their attention. Mm-hmm. If I say, oh, I'm a designer, I design for the triple bottom line, and I really want to make sure that this is what you're supposed to do because it's good for the people and the planet and everything, it's a different story, but it's not as compelling because it maybe it's, you know, some people don't really relate to that. It's kind of like a, a worldview or a point of view. But if I take their angle and then write a story around that, that's, that's a, it's a more compelling way of doing things. This is a good question because what if you don't have that honest and true and real research of, well, the comparison of, yes, we did increase your your profit by three times and how then can you mold that story do you feel i'm not sure exactly how to answer this one how would you mind reframing that question for me yeah so for example in your story you said at the very beginning that you could capture the ceo by sharing oh yeah that i can would you be interested if i show you a way to increase your profitability or whichever you said by three times and of course, then they instantly get that answer. But what if you don't, what is another way if you don't have that knowledge behind you that you can do that, honestly? Oh, okay, I see. So, well, you need to start somewhere. And I didn't start by making design or designing product that were Uh, for the triple bottom line and benefiting everyone and everything. So it's been a journey also. mm. So I, I think you need to start where you are and you still need to have this vision so I started where I was when I was 22 and I started my first design studio and I had this background in mechanical engineering and industrial design. So what I would say at the time is what I sketched, I know how to manufacture. So that gave me an edge from other designers most of the time. And I started building from that and very early because I had this personal interest in environmental sustainability, I started to educate and put that on the table. So one of my very first clients that was a startup company and uh, I had a discussion with the CEO, we were 
that was early days making sketches and early prototypes. And and I raised a question and said, you know, we're going to use composite material and they're not super environmentally friendly. Would you mind if we have a look at the environmental impact of, of your product and what maybe we could do about it? And the immediate answer of the CEO was, I'm not here about that. I'm, I'm here to make money. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand. And I kind of dropped that. And then two weeks later, he came back and said, well, you know, I... I also have a family, so what kind of world I'm going to leave to my kids if I just trash the planet with my products? So can we have that conversation again? And we had a conversation at the time, the technical limitation for composite were such that we couldn't quite achieve the goals that we had in terms of environmental impact, but at least we started to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And because of that, then I can move to the next one and then, okay, it's a case study where we tried to have sustainability and this, we faced limitation, but we could do a number of things. Mm -hmm. And then it's a personal journey. So one of my most profitable product was designed with a cradle to cradle methodology. So we tried to make sure that the environmental impact was not too bad. And then I realized also that the social impact wasn't there for that product. So I started to focus more on the social impact and then I started another journey around that. Mm. So in a nutshell, you need to start where you are and just keep pushing the boundaries until you can really express fully your own values and your own self. I like that where you say, just start where you are, because people sometimes try to stretch that and you aren't really authentic then. as so you try to create something that you're not at that point in the design. Yeah, I think you need authenticity and credibility. Mm -hmm. If you want to have the trust of the company and, and the CEO or the founder, you need to be comfortable with what you have and what you can deliver. And then you need to continue to add from that. Great. Mm. Right. You, you talked a little bit in your last statement about the social impact. And so do you want to just talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm quite curious what you mean, because there seems to be the environmental and the social, you split that up. And so I'd like to know what you mean by that. Yeah. So again, we all have different opinions when it comes to social impact, but I like to think in terms of ecosystem. Mm. So for me, the social impact is how do I impact people that are involved in the product that I'm going to design? Okay. So they are the user, of course, but there are also all the different stakeholders that are involved in the whole process from logistic, manufacturing, extraction of material and everything. And I understand you cannot solve all the problem at once. But again, if you have the mindset at the very beginning, then it can also direct your choice of material design and how you're going to express the product. So for example, one of the classic scenarios that I've seen is company that would design a product and then they would try to find a cheaper supplier so that they have the most comfortable profit margin. And then they would send, you know, their sales rep or the buyers actually, and try to negotiate, you know, every six months or every year, the terms and everything. And if you do that long enough with enough pressure, then some of the suppliers will uh, go out of business. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's not a very positive social impact. And, and you can still continue to shop around. But my philosophy is more around, okay, how can I work with you so that you have the profit margin you need to continue to be in operation? And we work together so that we have this kind of mutual win-win outcome and you have a good business and I have a good business and everything. And again, it starts where you are. Uh, when I started with that thinking, I was 22. I just started my first design studio and I approached the, the first supplier and I shared that with the supplier and I said, okay, I need to know exactly what's your profit margin and where you make the profit margin and, and all that so that I can design a better product and design the product with you so that I can help you increase the profit margin and maybe split the difference between you and my client. Mm. And they looked at me with very big eyes, <laughs> like I was an alien or something. <laughs> and, and it took them some time to trust me. It took um, maybe a year or two with different projects before they could really trust me. And then they opened the books and said, okay, this is where we make the money. And so this is quite comfortable here, here to be tight and everything. I said, well, okay, how about we start working on that? Because if I modify the design of that part here, it's easier for you to manufacture, right? I said, yeah. So... I can do that. That would not impact the product, you know, in terms of function and everything, but impact the product in terms of manufacturing. So you have a better profit margin. Is that right? Yes. Okay. How about you keep 
don't know, 60% of that and the 40% of different, you do that as a saving for the client. It's still a good deal. And I said, yeah. So that was a type of situation when, when you gain trust and have those conversations, then you can really have win-win. So from their perspective, it, that was easier to manufacture one of the products. From the client perspective, the work had an impact in, in their own profits too. Because suddenly the, pro- the product was slightly cheaper to make. And then there was, you know, those few extra cents or tens of cents per product. And when you combine that with, you know, thousands of units or more sometimes, it really impacts the bottom line. So everyone's happy. So that's, that's more what I think about social impact is trying to see how you can really benefit the whole ecosystem. And you can push further than that with, you know, further like the manufacturer, the raw material and everything. But that's, that's just an example to illustrate the point. It's a great point. There's a lot in what you just said. And one of the things that uh, key came out to me was, which is often very big today and talked about and it's probably all, has been since the beginning of time, and that is gaining trust. And there are lots of situations that we know today that there is this very low trust level. When I go into organizations, for example, they will often talk about the fact that the trust is very low. Now, in your field, it's about gaining trust, but every aspect of the line of command is about gaining trust because of the product. It's not just one way. It takes a lot of different stakeholders within it to be able to create that one piece, mm. correct? So it, you have multiple lines yeah. of trust and then cross lines of trust, right? So it's a complete circle and web, like a spider's web. And so therefore, how do you go about gaining trust? It's a very interesting question too, and it's something that I've been unfolding specifically in the last three years. One way to do it is by having the conversations as early as possible in a process. Mm. So now I have the conversation, not even before we start the work or we talk about the project with a prospect. I will talk about trust before we talk about the definition or the scope or the brief from the design perspective. And there's a great book by Stephen Coley, I guess. Stephen Coley. Yeah, thank you. Called The Speed of Trust. In a nutshell, if you have those open conversations and you really trust that everyone has your back and everything, then the business is thriving. It's shorter time of development, cheaper time of development, everything. Because you need, you don't need to cover your back mm-hmm. or, you know, you just need to be really open on what your situation is and what you expect from it. And then ask the, network or the team to help you solve that. So it's something I've been talking about more with my prospect and client for the last three years. And I can sense today there's a real craving for mm. that. Yes. I had a conversation just last week with um, an entrepreneur. So they had a hardware product idea. They are looking for industrial design studio to work with. And so we had a conversation and I shifted the conversation very quickly saying, okay, working with a designer is going to be frustrating at times because that's just how it is. It's all, you know, that's the nature of the, of the <laughs> beast, you know, that's working with creative, you know, it's the joy of the creativity. And then there's reality sometimes that kicks in and you need to align that. So that's why I like to call that applied creativity. But I said, you know, if we take the adversarial type of thinking, like, you know, I'm a supplier and I need to deliver and then we're going to have confrontations and that's going to slow everything down and that may even fail the project. But if we have a really open, trust-based conversation and we're here to help each other, then everything's going to be fine. It's just a matter of respecting the methodology and the process and it will go through the deep and it's just going to happen. It's just a matter of keep pushing and, and doing the work. And if you have those conversations, people say, oh gosh, I've been looking for that. That specific entrepreneur sent me a text the night after the conversation saying, okay, like, thank you. Because they, they, I think there's a real craving for that type of conversation where you could just lay everything on the table and say, okay, this is, as a creative, for example, I could say, okay, I'm stuck in my creative process. I need help. And you wouldn't maybe not expect that from a designer, but it does happen. I can get stuck. And sometimes just having an open conversation can help. And that's benefiting everyone, benefits me, but it also benefits the company and the outcome. So for me, is again, it's about creating the proper conversation and the frame for that. So talking about it very openly, 
And that allows what you were mentioning before, which is the shift on mindset. That is wonderful, what you just talked about. And I can relate to that ex a lot in my journey to the book. There is a chapter, which is a beautiful chapter, I think. <laughs> Many people have said it so. And that is called the tea ceremony. And in Morocco and as many countries such as in Japan or China or India or England and many other countries, they do a tea ceremony. And the tea ceremony is a very welcoming ceremony, but there's a lot of underlying nuance to what that tea ceremony is about. Mm -hmm. And for in Moroccans in the southern, especially in the south where I was with the Berbers and uh, Tashomite tribes and the other nomadic tribes, that is about three cups of tea. And the, they say the longer you expand and lengthen those three cups of tea, the more information you will get, the more rapport you'll get, the more clarity you will get, the more trust you will get, just simply by having those conversations and being very open. That is about what I call now, I now use as a circular communication. So there's an equality amongst the people in that circle, so to speak, that is in the conversation. And I hear what that's what you say about your experience. Mm -hmm. And this is a really valid place to be. And I think that today in the speed of change, that we miss that so much is that beautiful, what I would call in the journey, the departure, learning about mm. where the journey is going to take us. What are your thoughts? Yeah, your answer or your comment really trigger a number of things for me. One of them is I had this experience with a Chinese tea master when I was back in France, and I was training to drink here tea called Pu Air. And that tea is unfolding over a number of hours. So you need to use the same tea and leaves for a number of time. And then there is a whole journey of enfoldment of flavor essential oils and everything it's kind of a magic experience wow. and one thing i was told at that time is that tea ceremony was also used for social purposes or communication purposes mm -hmm. so you would invite people that will have a conflict on something and they would have tea together and it's very hard to spend three hours um, having tea with someone and having just a confrontational um, attitude so you will have to talk about things and then that would be a way to solve an issue, for example. So your experience of the tea ceremony and my experience are kind of similar, I guess, in, um, in some extent. And I like the idea of circular communication. One of the things I've been working on lately is the circular economy principle, right. which is very similar to design for the triple bottom mm -hmm. line. And the next step that I'm working uh, on will be regenerative design. But that's another, maybe a story for another time. Wow. That's another episode, I think, coming on then to find that. I, I, yeah. I, I love that about the ceremony that you're talking about because it was very interesting. I would watch the ceremony in the master tea maker, you know, you coming from France, you you know that Moroccan tea is is quite delicious, and also the way they they make it, you know, the long sort of dance of pouring it into each little shot glass and whichever. But there's always three cups of tea, as I I believe I mentioned, and each cup of tea there's more conversation and gathering of conversation. But it's interesting that the pouring is very important to be able to clarify the tea so that you can see through the tea. So that clarity of being able to see it, so there's no muck or anything in the tea. And then the foam that's on top has to be so thinly woven that it keeps the sand from going in the tea if you're in the desert, or it's able to see through into the tea. So there, it's this whole thing of clarity. And I would imagine, like in everything, and especially industrial design, you need that clarity so much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that boils down also to the intention. Mm. So, you know, when you talk about your 5D journey map, the first step is the direction. Mm. In my line of work, I would align that with what's your intention when you start a project. And I really try to dive down into that too, so that I understand what the founder or the CEO or the entrepreneur is trying to achieve. And once we're clear on that, when you have enough conversation and 
then the rest is, I would say, technical. It's a matter of doing it. But if you don't have a very clear intention at the beginning, or if you just want to chase, you know, something or make quick money and everything, then it's much harder to have a, a really positive outcome. Absolutely. Intention is so vital. I totally agree with you. And as we start here, you know, we started with an intention as to where we were going to go with this, just to find out and just let it flow. And I think the flowing is something that's extremely important in the creativity, because I was involved in a lot of my life was about creativity. And it's also important to realize that you said in the conversations is that I had an example of where I was developing a figure skating show for Holiday on Ice. And one of the, I had an conversation with the costume designer and it was over way over budget and also he was talking with the person who was in charge of budget and she said it's too much it's too much and so what was the wonderful thing was that was circular communication and it was about I didn't know where we should go as the designer and choreographer of the whole show and so what came out of that was that the budget person said well what if we did it this way and we went Wow, that's a great idea and a great solution. So that's the way we went. We, we just divided things into three and three different types of costumes and three different sequences. And so it was much simpler, but it was much more mm -hmm. effective. So that journey, that creative journey, I love what you talk about because it's so valuable, I think, in every conversation, right? And in every mm -hmm. aspect of life, we go through that. It's just that we don't see it as creative there's a um, number of points that you were mentioning that i really uh, resonate with i think there's an organic shape i would say to creativity you know where you start you may know where you want to go but then the trajectory is very organic it's you know it, you could describe that as messy of chaotic but organic is a very good term too and there is flow in that the one thing next to the leg next and 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 so long and so forth, and then end up finishing the journey where you thought you would lead. So I, I can I can really resonate with this flow that you were mentioning. A few months ago, I wrote, wrote an article around creativity, and, and you may also feedback on that. So for me, there are three steps in the creative process. Mm -hmm. The first step, I call that immersion, which is you need to immerse yourself in the new challenge of creativity. So if you need to design a costume for ice skating event with a theme, then you need to really immerse yourself in the theme, in the technicalities of ice skating, in the, in the environment that there is a physical environment and everything. The second step is, I call that just doing the work. It's like sitting down, doing the hard work with a blank sheet of paper and trying to find solutions and everything. And the third step, which I find is the most powerful, and I call that letting go. Mm. And that's where you have the idea in a shower or at night or when you have this walk in nature or something, when your mind is completely relaxed and suddenly you have this brilliant idea that's going to pop up in your head. And it's like, oh my God, that's it. This kind of eureka moment. So I don't know if you experience something similar or if you have similar framework in a creative process. Yeah, I think that my journey is very much similar to that in that when I go through a creative process is that I first, I don't know if you feel this, but I first, when I have an idea for a project, is that all of a sudden my senses become extremely peaked. And this begins that what you call the immersion is that Everything I see is a possibility and everything has a meaning and it has an internal aspect. There's an emotional aspect. There is a mental, there's a physical, there is this complete circle. And then I start to figure out, well, what is it? What is the show? What is the theme? What are the possibilities? What are the different scenes in this? And then then breaking, then creating that, and then breaking down what is each scene. And I like to look at them on multiple layers. And I'm sure that that's exactly what you do is to, I look at them from a color layer. I look at from a spiritual layer. I look at from an emotional layer. I, what is the impact? What are the multiple layers that I feel the audience can get involved with? Because it's not just one thing. 
And I would imagine that's the same for you. It's not just the appearance of your mm. product, but it's what is attracting the people. So then I think that I go through the same process with you doing the work and then let the letting go is very important on multiple layers. Yeah, I would agree. And that's something I've been discussing also with different entrepreneurs. I'm always surprised that sometimes some company will employ creative people and ask them to stay in a cubicle and a dead desk and, you know, and that's not how creativity works. If you want your creative people to be creative, they need to be able to shift environment and they need to be able to have that letting go moments and so that they can process all the experience, the knowledge and all the different criteria and constraints for the product or the service of any creative task they has to be involved mm -hmm. with. So I'm always surprised knowing how powerful is that third stage. Yeah. I'm always surprised that people think that they have to be productive and sitting at their desk or something. I had my Eureka moments having a bath or a shower or at <laughs> night, you know, I can wake up in the middle of the night and it's thinking, oh my God, this is it. That's, you know, I, and I will quickly turn the light on, sketch something and then fall back asleep. And that's the letting go. It's, you know, my mind is completely relaxed and I'm working on the project, but at the back of my mind is something still happening. Yeah, I think that, that you're absolutely true, right about that. And I think personally, this, what you're talking about comes back to the awareness of which I talk about in my book are the three different mindsets, the nomadic mindset, the builder mindset, and the settler mindset. And it's about the awareness of these mindsets of individuals it's, and and a letting go of each one. So knowing that if it's a builder that is the CEO and saying, okay, you go and be creative, then understand what is the nomad of the creator and allow them mm -hmm. to explore. And if it's a settler is to understand, okay, they're going to hold this project together and keep it functioning and on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And my job as a builder is to allow that to happen but to keep it on strategy and on focus. So the, all the three mindsets have to work together rather than saying, no, you cannot do that or you cannot do that. That doesn't work for a nomadic mindset, which is the creative aspect, because it just stops you. Yeah, I'm completely aligned with this. Yeah, I like your definition of the three different mindsets. And yeah, there's, there's this tendency for people to think that people are employees or you know, stakeholders have to behave the same way that I do. And, you know, I understand there is comfort in that, but I think the innovation comes really from diversity. So uh, I can only talk about my experience, but I think my best work was done when I could do my creative work and confront that, not in a confrontational way, but in a positive construction way, confront that with the marketing team the engineers or the production people that are more system oriented right. and the finance people that don't want to understand sometimes how it's made and everything, but they look at the different numbers and they have the template in front of them. And then they, because everyone has their own perspective yes. on things. And instead of fighting that or denying that or trying to confront that the traditional way, you can nourish yourself from that. And I'm not saying, you know, that it's easy at times. It can be quite difficult, but it's actually quite simple also at the same time. It comes back to the mindset that you were mentioning at the beginning. If your mindset is to have this trusting attitude and kind of open-minded, then it's easier to welcome the different aspects and the different constraints that are around the table and, and work with it instead of trying to, you know, fight and work for your own department or angle only. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that it's very interesting what you're talking about on a, a very large level. And so I'm going to ask you the last question, and that is, if you were to speak to a new client or whichever, what are the three things that you feel that they need to know about moving into working with an industrial designer or a creative person? What are the th three things they need to know? I think I'll come back to trust again. Like if you really want a project to work on so many d levels and layers and impact, we need to trust each other. I need to trust that the CEO is doing his job and, and trying to, you know, keep the vision 
and uh, the direction of the company and everything. And they have a view that I don't have. I have a view from the outer circle of his company and I have a creative view. So it's, you know, but we need to have this place where we can trust that the conversation would lead to a positive outcome. So trust will be definitely on the table. Then it's about respecting each other's qualities. The marketing or the finance person that is around the table is not here to annoy you because you're the creative. It's here because they have their own guidelines and they need to do things a certain way. And sometimes, yes, we have to be challenged and, and everyone around the table can be challenged. But it's really good to understand that instead of separating and, and having this adversarial position, if we combine and collaborate, then that's where the real positive outcomes really come from. So I think I will talk about trust, I'll talk about collaboration, and also respecting and understanding the process. So I, I was mentioning that kind of curve with on one axis you have the time and the other you have excitement. At the beginning, very often, everyone gets excited because, you know, there's a new idea, there's a new potential and everything. And then you go into the deep and you need to have this spirit of collaboration. Then you're also open to those conversations. And then, yeah, instead of fighting each other, then you seek this win-win uh, collaborative outcome. And that's, you know, that would be the, the most beneficial. And respecting the methodology. So the design methodology has a deep. And if you just respect that and go through the methodology and go through the process, then there is always a positive outcome. So we need to trust that the creative process is not a linear process. It's kind of organic. It's a bit messy. There are times it's a bit foggy. You don't really see where you're going and everything. But I've done that often enough and for over 25 years now so that I can tell you that if you keep pushing and doing the work, then the outcome will eventually mm -hmm. appear. That's wonderful. Trust, respecting the methodology and others and the collaboration. Those are great thoughts and also actions that actually really are what's important in not only artistic adventures, but also in everything possible, whether it be leadership, whichever. So, mm -hmm. Philippe, this has been amazing and wonderful to talk to you. I've really enjoyed this. this it's been very flow-orientated, and I really have enjoyed that very much. And I can't thank you enough for being here. I mean, it's uh, I've loved it. Oh, thank you, Kevin. I, thanks for your incisive questions. I really enjoyed the, the conversation, too. And I'll hope the audience will get some benefit from both your experience ah, and mine. They will, absolutely. So I want to thank you very much, and we will be signing off. You've been listening to The Nomadic Mindset Season 1. My name is Kevin Cottom, and I invite you to find out more about The Nomadic Mindset at thenomadicmindset.com. Until next time, make it a point to go nomadic and start discovering your nomadic mindset.